This is Bad Movies We Love, part of the Scheiss Podcast Network. Oh yeah! Hello, Bad Movie Lovers! I am your host, Nick Scheist, and it is great to be back with you for another episode of Bad Movies We Love. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. And the resistance is growing because I just got a new donation from Sharon. So thank you, Sharon, so much for helping me keep the lights on and for providing stuff like music for this show. You can be like Sharon and go over to coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash badmovieswelove. And if you're not in a position to donate, that's completely understandable. But if you still want to help the show, you can subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and give the show a rating, like our movie friend Seth. He graciously took the time to say, very entertaining show that dips into the forgotten, the strange, and the bad. Nick guides lively discussions that never meander into boring territory. Check it out. Thanks, Seth. And we're going to get into one of those lively discussions right now. I was joined once again by my brother in Morbius. Sean stopped by to talk about the fueled up 80s madness that is Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive. This movie actually is a lot better than you might expect. In fairness to Stephen King, this is not the worst directorial debut that exists. Man, it's all about the Green Goblin truck. I don't like big rigs at all. If I see one anywhere near me, I'm getting out of the way. A kid gets rolled over with a steamroller. Let's fucking go big or go home here. What on earth is a pea turkey? Asshole, asshole, asshole. It speaks a language that I'm used to. Wait a second, loaded his pants. Shit's nostalgia time. Just saw his coach basically die at the hands of a vending machine. Breakfast Club, Emilio Estevez, Eat My Shorts, Yardley Smith. I'm making connections that probably aren't really connected, but I'm making them. Wait a second, I thought this was all caused by a comet. Why did you bring a UFO into this? Sean, welcome back. It's been not that long, but it feels like Morbius was quite some time ago. But I don't think it really was that long ago. No, I don't remember when it was. But, you know, I know it lives in infamy now. I know it's... uh, It does. It's climbing the charts. Yes. It it (laughs) might, might end up in your pantheon. It might. You know, maybe I'd look back on it. It's like it's still a little too new to really step back and see where it lands in like the the upper echelon of bad movies we love but i'm glad to see that some of the morb heads and morb heads have come out and listened to it and uh ended up being one of the most popular episodes of this show so very happy to report that and glad to have you back to talk about maximum overdrive that was a movie that before I sort of strong-armed you into choosing Morbius. Maximum Overdrive was on the short list of movies that we had briefly talked about doing on this show. And now, since it's October, I think this is a good place 
for maximum overdrive to find its way back with all 18 wheels into our hearts. So thank you. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that, I think it was one of the things I put up. I put up to a vote on Twitter. And I, I do think I put maximum overdrive as one of the three choices. And I think it's because, as you know, I, I have a troubling addiction to steelbooks. Mm. And they put out a steelbook of maximum overdrive. So that's where it got back into my brain. I was like, oh, man, like, I loved that movie when I was a kid. So I had to get it. I pre-ordered it. I was like, man, I need to I need to have that in my collection. Yeah, I'm sure the steelbook actually looks great for this because, I mean, for all its flaws, this is a movie that has style. And it has a lot of color. It has a lot of action. I mean, they went big on the special effects as well. So it didn't really pull its punches in terms of style, but it also feels like it's almost a TV movie that had a nice budget and had more name actors than you would normally get in a made for TV movie. So it sort of like walks the line between having that feel and especially if some of King's other stories that had been turned into either miniseries or TV films and something that was closer to a studio project. And, you know, there's a lot of complications behind the scenes as well as Dino De Laurentiis, who is the producer on this, was in the middle of ending his contract and starting his own studio. And he took this movie on, I think, as the first film that was under the new banner of, I think it was uh, De La Rentis Entertainment Group, but I forget if it was Regency. This is where I need Nick's in here. He's a big De La Rentis guy, so he would have all of the details. I think it was Regency Films. I don't know. If I find it, I'll make sure to inject that later. Yeah, that's uh that's in your purview. I don't uh I don't get too deep into any of that. I, I did look up because I saw that the main producer, I don't know what the official title was, I don't know if executive producer was someone with the last name Schumacher. So I was like, mm. Is this related to Joel Schumacher? Apparently she's the wife of that guy or something. I don't know. Like she no Joel Schumacher was not involved in this. But it's not. No, it's, but it he, seems very Schumachery though. Yeah. Like I, I had to at least Google that to see if that was a connection, but it was not. So uh, the name of the production company was Embassy Pictures that he bought and then turned it into De Laurentiis Entertainment Group. And he distributed this film himself. So that's how that's how you get out of a contract dispute is you buy the company that you're arguing with and turn it into your own company and then you can do whatever the hell you want. So points right. for Dino. I think this is maybe the second or third movie. I know King Kong for sure was De La Rentis, but it seems like ever since that King Kong movies have popped up where all of a sudden I see Dino De La Rentis. I'm like, wow, I'm like he produced this one, too. So. It's kind of cool to do another one within not maybe the same universe, but the same sphere and to see some of that connective tissue. I've done multiple Verhoeven's on this show now at this point as well. So it's always fun to sort of look at things with a little bit bigger or at least a smaller piece of a larger whole, I should say. And with Maximum Overdrive, I don't think I've done a Stephen King movie on this show yet. But if we're going to do one, 
we might as well do the one that Stephen King adapted and directed himself and then got coked out of his mind and was like, yeah, let's fucking go big or go home here. So I'm glad that it's Maximum Overdrive. Uh, I love this movie as a kid, too, and I saw it probably way too young and just watching it, you know, an hour ago or so. I was like, this movie's fairly graphic in its violence. I mean, it's not like so nasty, but there's a lot of blood. There's a lot of death. So I want to know, like, what age were you when you saw this? And like, was this something that was on your radar as a kid? Or is this something you went to theaters for? I doubt I went to like the theater. Um, I was young. And look, I don't know exactly, but I don't think single digits, but mm. we're certainly early teens. You know, I'm an only child. My parents were very open minded when it came to the movies I was allowed to watch. Um, I definitely watched movies that were not appropriate for my age, my parents. So I would go to the library and pick out movies. And if I picked out R-rated movies, like the librarians wouldn't let me take it out of my card. My parents would take it out of their card. <laughs> they were aware. Like, you, do, do you know what I'm saying? My father would show me movies. Yeah. That, um, I turned out fine. I think I'm pretty <laughs> well uh, adjusted. You know, I guess, you know, my parents didn't see much shame in especially sex and nudity. Like, I'll tell you, my grandparents went to see Eyes Wide Shut in the theater. Like, and that's my grandparents now. Hey, good for them. You know, so like it definitely like that's how, you know, people have different upbringings. And my upbringing was to not be like, I remember like seeing Child's Play single digit age. Yeah, me too. So... And again, I turned out fine. So for me, like, I'm going to start out by saying, like, man, it's all about the Green Goblin truck. Like, Mm -hmm. I think I think as a kid, I saw that truck. I thought, man, that's the coolest looking truck ever. And it's driving itself like it looks you see how that can trigger a child that truck and just trigger a child's imagination. Oh, yeah, definitely struck fear in my heart for many, many years. Still, I don't like big rigs at all. If I see one anywhere near me, I'm getting out of the way. Yeah. So I just thought I was cool. I I think I just thought I was cool. I just think that and like the flatbed machine gun truck. Yeah. Those like those two things just turned me, my my imagination wild. I thought that it was great. So I don't know. Maybe I was just uh, somehow a secretly violent kid or something like that. (laughs) I I think I think it's totally okay to like explore things of a violent nature in a safe space. I mean, we've talked about horror movies in the past and sort of what that does to your psyche. But I think the thing that a lot of people like about horror films and myself included is that it gives me a a safe space to engage in something that is going to scare me. But I know that when the movie ends, like I can leave that behind. And it's like I like people go to Halloween Horror Nights and all these things, you know, haunted houses and haunted mazes and all these things that intentionally invoke this fear. But it's in a controlled, safe environment where it's not really going to hurt you. Yeah. And I mean, as you know, I think you know me well, like my preference is well enough to understand why this horror movie is my up my alley because it's doesn't take it definitely doesn't take itself seriously. Nope. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, I've seen people describe it as campy, you know? Like, yeah, very much so. You know, like it's there. And the other thing is, is that like, 
there's, you know, good people to root for and some assholes that get, get what's, what's coming to them. And, uh, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, as you know, I don't like torture horror. I don't like yeah. just bad things happening to people with no, no light at the end of the tunnel. You know, so this is much more like my kind of horror movie where, yeah, it's gory, it's violent. A kid gets rolled over with a steamroller. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> That's no a bold horror. choice. Yes. Like, <laughs> like, and, and uh, something I was talking about with horror movies is like kids and dogs. And like kids aren't spared in this movie. And a dog is not spared in this movie. There's a quick s- shot of a dog with like a toy police car in its mouth. Yeah, that, that toy police car went nuts and killed that dog. Yeah, and they don't go again. They don't show the. I think that's a taboo. To pretty much is showing a dog actually getting killed. Mm-hmm. So they don't show it, but they show the aftermath. Where it's a kid, kid gets flattened on screen. So like he gets he gets steamrolled on screen. So I mean, despite the goofiness of the movie, and you know the campiness. There, there's some, there's some actual over-the-top, you know, violence in the movie. Oh, absolutely! And that steamroller scene actually was supposed to be even more bloody, as Stephen King had told, I guess, the special effects team that he wanted a like a blood bag to be there with the dummy that they're going to roll over. So that way, when the steamroller went over the top of the kid and flattened him, that as it came around the next time, it would have a big blood stain on it that would then sort of act as like a an ink stamp on the grass as it continued to roll along but when they put the bag in there because it's a steamroller like it didn't just ooze out slowly the blood bag exploded and stephen king was like yeah that's even better but the mpaa said no sir (laughs) you're gonna need to cut that out of the movie we can't have you run over a child and have that child explode into liquid it's a little too far sir yeah, but so what you're trying to say is that he wanted to like be as if the steamroller became like a paint roller. Yes, basically. <laughs> oh, I mean, call me sick, but you know what, man? That's a pretty that's a pretty neat idea. It is. I like that idea. And yeah. I mean, sure, he was coked up when he maybe thought of that idea, but I like that he just is not holding back at that point. He's like, look, we're going to run this kid over with a steamroller. We might as well have it be like bloody and like real, because otherwise, like if we're not if we're not going to take the time to actually like show the consequence or like show that these machines are capable of killing a kid and a dog and whatever, then you know that, hey, the kid who is, I guess, like the main kid is safe from danger. So it's like, okay, we can't do that. So you have to sort of like have a combination of different people getting killed in the lead up to the standoff at the gas station that lets you know that like really nobody is safe here. Any of these people can get killed and a lot of them do. Yeah, I mean, you need sticks, you know, you need like, you need, yeah. And I, I did find there's reasons for elements of the story that do pay off like it isn't random like it's i i again like the i'm not intelligent enough or knowledgeable enough to talk about stephen king the director and his his abilities as a director his i know he was up for razzies or whatever you mm-hmm. know worst director of the year which apparently prince won instead but um, <laughs> that's like, good company 
That's a that's another really good creative person in that category. Yeah, of course. And like I felt like the movie, you know, flowed well. It like everything seemed shot well. You know, you know, there's one scene I'll actually point like I think the whole sequence, you mentioned the kid, mm-hmm. where the kid is riding his bike through the neighborhood. Yeah. Even that little sequence of, of him riding his bike um, through the middle of the street and the sprinklers going off, uh, you know, one by one as he passes them. I don't know. I mean, like, that had to take some sort of, you know, ability to, you know, figure out the shot and and figure out the camera. You know, I again, I can't speak intelligently about this. You're probably about, but you know what I'm trying to say? Like, it took several framing of the shot. Yeah. Like, there's creativity there's thought there's planning that goes into all of that like you have to synchronize it it's shot a certain way so that he's flanked by the sprinklers on both sides and this kid is of course seeing all these machines freak out so he doesn't know if like those are just on a timer and they're going off that way or if these are the machines that are turning that on to like alert other machines that he's there so it plays into what the movie is trying to do fairly well and i think that whole scene through the neighborhood is one of the better scenes and it feels most directly Stephen King in that it's got small town feel. You have a kid at the center of it. You're not really having anybody actively die, but you're doing a lot of atmospheric tension by having him go through the neighborhood and seeing all of the different levels of destruction that have been caused by the machines. And then you end it with a lawnmower chasing him. So it's like it it camps it up a little bit at the end and like takes down the seriousness a little bit. But I think it benefits this movie by not being overly serious, because if you're going to be overly serious, like you get a very different movie here, like a lot of the character archetypes have to change because I don't think you can put this version of Emilio Estevez's character into a very serious movie. No, definitely not. Or that Bible salesman who was right. Clearly like, <laughs> played to be a buffoon. You know what I'm saying? Like, Sleazy buffoon as well. So, I mean, what I want to say about that whole sequence before we move away from it is I think again, like the time I think the timing of that whole sequence in in the neighborhood was perfect because most of the movie takes place at the truck stop. So it's very almost like I'm not gonna call it like a you know like a play, but you know, it's just in this one location. And I think it was an effective way and maybe a low budget way mm-hmm. of what's going on in the larger world outside of the trucks, the truck stop. Showing that this is not, you hear some radio broadcasts and stuff, you know, news broadcasts, but you can see that, like, I mean, that neighborhood is silent. Like, there's nothing yeah. going on. Like, everyone's dead. And, like, I think it, I think it has an apocalyptic feel that sure. is actually a little, you know, pretty, uh, like, effective. I mean, effective and, like, not a chilling, but, like, just, like, oh, like, this is what's happening in the whole world, not just in this truck stop. And I think it needed something outside of the truck stop to show, you know, this what's going the stakes at hand. That this isn't just these people that are um, you know, being threatened. The whole entire world is being threatened by this. And it's it's very, it's very chilling, like I said. And you know, kind of like I can't really, I'm just getting this thought in my head now, but it's kind of similar to The Mist, where like in The Mist, like it takes place in this one 
Yeah, the grocery store. store. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have no idea how far this mist goes and what's going on in the outside world. And that's really scary, too, you know, that there's this unknown out there. But um, I just, I, I thought that kind of like what you said, I think that's maybe, we don't have to say best, but one of the best sequences in the whole movie. I really do. And I think yeah. it was well connected. Yeah, and it's one of the moments in the film that also is like really true to its horror roots. Like that scene is trying to be scary. And then, you know, the lawnmower chase at the end kind of takes it down a notch, but you go through this neighborhood with like a child for a reason there's a you know it's a decision to not have this be one of the other characters seeing all this yeah. this is a kid who just saw his coach basically die at yeah. the hands of a vending machine and so he's trying to get home i think he's trying to like see his folks and see if they're okay and so he has to ride back into his neighborhood and you see all the different variety of machines that have caused havoc at this point and I think it's important because at the truck stop, the vast majority of it comes down to just the big rigs. They're like he's I think yeah. Estevez says, like, these are the heavyweights. Right. So this is really where you spend your money. This is where a lot of the uh, special effects budget is going to go to because there's, I mean, there's a rocket launcher. There's a lot of stuff getting run over or bulldozed in some cases. So like these are the heavy hitters that you're really spending a lot of time with. and it's the iconic stuff from this movie that carries on because you go to that neighborhood and you see that there was a guy who died. Uh, looks like his headphones were on too loud and like bled to death from his yeah. brain. You know, there's the lady upstairs. I don't remember exactly what killed her, but she's like hanging out the window and the blow dryer blow dryer. So yeah, you've got all these like small little like household items where it's like, nothing is really safe that you're accustomed to being safe here. There's, I mean, they do it in the, diner with the electric knife which is always a scene that i thought was way gorier than it actually is but like you know my imagination filled in some of that as a as a child but it's still a, a scary moment in that you realize that hey it's not just the trucks outside like every little thing is gonna be a problem here yeah and that's um in a weird way like i kind of i didn't i didn't have the capacity i think when i was a kid to realize but really this is an apocalypse genre movie i feel yes. like I would say so. So, you know, and I think that's that's why that scene was effective. And that, so, I mean, the thing with that boy, like, I don't know what he was in it, you know, but eventually, like, he realizes he needs to go find his father, you know. So he's trying to find his father at the truck stop because he works at the truck stop. Mm -hmm. And, like, you know, I think his journey is important because it brings things down to, like, sort of a you know a natural easily relatable level Do you, does that make any sense yeah i think when we take a look at all the other characters they're mostly victims of circumstance yeah. where it's like hey they happen to be here this couple was out on the road they stop at the one place they can stop you've got uh, the smarmy car salesman and the hitchhiker that sort of end up there emilio is on a work release program so he kind of has to be there because that's like his only job and so you get all these characters that are in this place just circumstantially and then you get this kid who the first time we meet him he goes right into the danger he sees like his coach get messed up by the soda can and immediately puts on the face mask and tries to go check on him. And then 
he leaves there and he's going right back into the danger again. And then he's working his way towards the truck stop. So like of all these characters that you have, you have this child who is exhibiting much more bravery and intent than realistically anybody else in the film. And I think that's why that scene with him riding through the neighborhood is so important because I I think the knee jerk reaction is to be like, Oh, Emilio is the hero of this story. And it's like, okay, he's the adult. They go out of their way to say he's a hero several times in the movie, which feels like a little bit of overkill. But uh, then you have this kid who like really doesn't have any weapons, doesn't have a car, doesn't have any training, like wasn't in jail, like has none of the things that Emilio has, but still rides headlong into the danger anyway to go find out what happened to his dad. And so it gives the audience something to latch onto in a tangible way that maybe some of the other characters don't like it's a small town. They're all interesting character archetypes that have to like work together, at least coexist in this space. But the kid I think is the real hero. Yeah. So yeah, it's a very human element, you know, you know, and tragic. I think that's what I mean by stakes. Like, you know, like it's, it's tragic because, you know, he learns that his father got killed and you know and he still shows a brave face in the end like i don't know the more we're talking about i think that i think he in a way is the best character in the whole movie yeah absolutely yeah emilio is the hero as his uh love interest says many times right um, i think i'd like to talk you mentioned yearly smith and kurt and connie um back in the day when i saw this I didn't. I didn't even know she was in the. You know what I'm saying? Like it's. Mm-hmm. it's Yard, oh, it's Yardley Smith. You know Yardley Smith. Like I don't know. Did you have any feelings about her? Like seeing Yardley Smith and like young Yardley Smith in this movie. I I remembered her, but at the same time, like it didn't connect the dots that she's voiced Lisa Simpson. You know, starting in '89, so only a couple years after this. You know, she goes on to do one of the most famous voices in all of television for, I mean, look at what is it, 30 plus years now. So connecting those dots is a little bit weird, but I sort of loved her and Kurt as like this weird, odd couple that, I mean, they just gotten married. They're on a road trip somewhere. I don't even remember, but they give this like and innocence not the right word but they give a sort of like fragile energy to the story because aside from realistically the kid looking for his dad there's not a lot of like interpersonal stakes right like you get emilio and like the woman shows up brett and she's like immediately in love with him and because he's got the earring and the dirty white t-shirt and she's so enamored with him but like their relationship comes together so inorganically that it doesn't really feel like there's any stakes to it. And then you have this young married couple who, you know, we're just trying to go on our honeymoon. We just got married. Like we're just trying to live our life. And then like shit is falling in their lap and they have a fun character dynamic to watch too. Like the way the characters are written, the way her performance sort of heightens all of the the stressors that are in that moment make for much more entertaining film, I think. Yeah, I mean, so she does a really good yell, scream, cry face. Mm-hmm. She's definitely like, and I, you know, I thought they had a really cute dynamic, you know, you know, it was really cute, you know, how, you know, they kind of, 
you know, she gives him a hard time, but she clearly loves him. You know, like at some point I feel like, like she's almost at first, it seems like she's almost like the badass of the couple because like, she's, I feel like she made a couple of digs about how he, she should have driven instead of him because she's going to be the crazier driver. Mm-hmm. But then he steps up at the end along with Amelia Estevez to go and try to save the creepy Bible salesman. Like he's one, he's one of the dudes that was like, no, I need to go. Like the right thing to do is go save this guy. Yeah, um, it, was, it was him first. And then Emilio was like, well, I can't let you go do this alone. So yeah, you know, Make so sure you don't die out there by yourself. So, you know, and again, I think part of why, like, I'm like, went from like talking about like the boy we've been talking about, and then like mm-hmm. Smith's character is these are people that I rooted for. And this is what I need. And for me, the reason for, for me to really like fall in love with a horror movie, I need people to root for. You know, I need people that I want to survive. I want, I want people I want to survive. Does that make any sense? Like, you know, like, yeah, you, you of know. course you want to cheer for something like you don't want the character that you like to die. And that's a fine line to walk as the creatives. Like, do you risk killing the person that the audience has invested in? But I think more to your point that like, these are characters that are atypical hero archetypes. Like Emilio, they try to make him look like, you know, a particular type of guy. He's got the haircut. He's got the scruff. He's got the earring. He's got the white shirt. Like he he meets this girl and she's immediately all over him. And she goes out of her way like, oh, you're not just like a hero on paper. You make love like a hero too, or whatever dumb shit she said to him. I was like, what? (laughs) So they like they work really hard to tell us that Emilio is the hero and he still does the hero stuff like he he shows bravery. He goes out in those moments. He wields a gun. He does all of the things you would expect of the hero in all of these other movies. But he's not the character that I'm really ever cheering for in this movie. No, and I mean. Look, I, I I wrote my notes, man. If I was Brett, I'd be chatting up him too. You know, <laughs> look, man, Emilio Estevez, eighties Emilio Estevez. He's fresh off of uh, the Breakfast Club. You know, uh, you know, pretty people tend to get together, and I mean, <laughs> it does. So it does make a little sense to the story for the two of them to get together because Emilio Estevez is like on a work release program. And she's hitchhiking to Florida, which we never find out why. And we really don't need to. But she's either on the run from something or on the run to something. So she's, you know, so believe it or not, I actually <laughs> think that that couple makes sense and is, I won't, I'm not going to go as far as say well-written, but <laughs> it's not random. No, it's not random at all. And I think like them ending up together makes sense. But it happens so early in the movie that like the trucks are outside trying to kill them and they're having sex like in the other room. And it's like, look, I get that you guys are like really into each other, but you guys have way bigger problems to deal with. And typically, I mean, maybe it's just like I've seen a lot of movies and typically what happens is, you know, there's some tension between the two of them. They flirt. There's some pushback and forth. And then at the end, it's like they embrace and have that moment. But this is like, no, they go to the gas station and like they're together from the halfway point and on. Yeah, I mean, he even like, I mean, the dude asks her if I mean, he does in a cute way where it's like, I think he says, are you going to like cut me with your blade or whatever? But he even asks permission to put his arm around 
And it's like, man, this guy's this guy's a dreamboat. Like maybe, <laughs> look, man, hey, if you were Brett and you had a guy like Amelia <laughs> who was even respectful enough to ask permission, I don't know, you might uh, fall into bed with him too pretty quickly, you know. So, like, I don't know. I I do feel like it is like a genre thing though. Like it's the apocalypse. You know, so people yeah. do crazy things really quickly when they think they might die very suddenly. Um, you know, like, so maybe like that's the, their motivation. They were like, we don't know how long we're going to live. We're two pretty people. We might as well uh, do what pretty people do. And, <laughs> uh, have a little fun. So then that reminds me of Hendershot. So we've got Hendershot. And Hendershot's the big boss. Mm-hmm. And he spends the whole movie trying to big, be the big boss, trying to still tell people what to do, still trying to threaten uh, Bill, you know, oh, I'm going to put you back in jail, you know, whatever, you know, that he's going to tell on him because, you know, you see the scene in the beginning where he wants him to only clock in for eight hours, but work nine hours trying and say, mm-hmm. well, you don't listen to me. This is the way it is. So like, and at some point, um, Emilio Estevez's character was like, do you see what's going on out here? Like, what are you talking about? Like, you're like threatening me, but like the world, is, he doesn't say it this way. I'm saying it like the world's ending and you're still like acting like you can control everyone. But like, in my mind, I was like, this is a way uh, for this character to to keep normalcy because they're faced with trucks that are driving themselves like you know like i actually felt that psychologically it made sense that like it hypothetically if you're in this situation these are ways that people will cope you know the big boss will continue to try to be the big boss the the pretty people who just meet each other are like well we might as well go have sex because we don't know how long we're gonna live (laughs) Um, do you see what I'm saying? Like, I actually do think that thematically, these elements do make sense in the bigger picture. Yeah. And I mean, I think you can tell that the the source material and like where the characters come from uh, is from a well-written, like foundational place. And Pat Hingle, who plays Hendershot, the great Pat Hingle, he, when we meet him, is accustomed to like having power, having leverage. He right. is the leader, more or less, in this environment. And then as the situation changes, like his leadership no longer matters. And him losing that makes him want to cling to it more. But it heightens the difference between the character that he is and the character that Emilio is. Now, as opposed to Hendershot, I mean, the dude has a stockpile of weapons. He does. He's got a lot of guns and some bazookas. Let me ask you a question about, so Stephen King is from Maine, famously. Mm. This takes place in North Carolina. Do you feel like there's some poking fun at the Southerners in this in this story? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, King strikes me as the type to not have an issue doing that. So I can definitely see your point there. And you know, if he really was like super coked up when he wrote the book too, like it may have all been intentionally done 
to sort of make fun of that. But at the end of the day, like it's still the same kind of like small town story that he typically tells uh, in other northeastern locations. And still, you know, you got the kid and the baseball team and the neighborhood and the local diner, everybody gets together. So I think it hits a lot of the familiar points and maybe this particular character is the example of like the thing that he likes the least about the Carolinas. But oddly enough, this movie takes place in North Carolina was filmed in North Carolina weekend at Bernie's, which I just talked to Vanya about this morning is uses North Carolina as the Hamptons. So surprisingly, I didn't think the two movies had any kind of connection whatsoever. And then I'm like, wow, they're both North Carolina movies. What are the odds of that? Well, I will share with you, funny enough, my uh, my closest friend, we're not going to go into this on the podcast, but he just told me that he's going to be moving to the eastern coast of North Carolina. Oh, wow. Like, just told me <laughs> on Saturday. Isn't that weird? Yeah, like, you said he was moving. I didn't expect it to be North Carolina. There's some something in the universe that's drawing us to North Carolina right now. Yeah, so look, in the future, I, I, I certainly will visit my friend. He's right by the water. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, like, so I definitely, like, that actually colored a little bit of what I was looking at because, you know, it was shot in North Carolina. So I was like, oh, I guess that's what North Carolina looks like. You know, it's nice. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, just like like his name is Bubba, and like he's got a stockpile of weapons. <laughs> you know, he's got. And then you've got the the traveling hypocritical Bible salesman. Yeah, carrying. Look, that's. Did you notice that that suitcase that dude had? That was a that was a pretty full suitcase. It's it. His suitcase was shaped like a Bible, and it said Bible. <laughs> There, I mean, look, man, I don't know. Like, if I was a Bible salesman, I think I'd like that suitcase to carry around. Is that like, the same suitcase that gets mowed over by one of the trucks later on? Of course it is. <laughs> so, yeah, you know. I mean, I think we know Stephen King is a good enough writer to uh, do all that stuff with intent. Yes. And, but the, the thing that I like about these things, though, is none of it's heavy-handed. No, you know not saying? at all. Like we're just talking about we're just talking about all these little elements that build into the greater story and none of it is heavy-handed you know i think that's part of what i liked about the movie is that it's very balanced um you know there's nothing that's too um all right well there's nothing i got sick of in my in my personal you know like you know they they have the they have the bible salesman he's kind of funny and then he gets knocked into a muddy ditch for most of the movie. Mm-hmm. And we like we don't even know he's alive until half an hour later where he's groaning. And it's like, OK, well, now I think we should probably send a rescue mission to go get him. Um, but, yeah, this movie is listed as action, comedy, horror. So it really like has a pretty wide scope on it. And I don't think it's ever trying to be super scary. but it's effective in like its gore elements and some of the horror elements that it puts on the screen, but the tone never stays that way for long. And so I could definitely see this as like a straight comedy where like a little tweak here, a little tweak there, this becomes almost like an outright punchline driven comedy, which it isn't, but 
could be. And then same thing with the action, like the action shots in this are pretty well done. They have some real good pyrotechnics being done here. They use a lot of good uh, like squibs for the machine gun and like people get really messed up in it uh, on the other end of that machine gun. So I, I feel like it was money well spent in good areas to sort of cover all your bases. And maybe if you're Stephen King, you're so well known for horror and that's kind of like what has made you famous and made you rich and given you the opportunity to make this movie maybe you're like hey i want to do something my way do it differently and hey maybe the drugs had a lot to do with it but at the same time this is still a guy who's finally having like full creative control over one of his projects which he hasn't in the past so i appreciate that and i like that it isn't a a narrow lane that this movie is in. I like that it does a lot of things and maybe some people would say it doesn't do any of them that well. And maybe that's what we'll get to when we take a look at what the critics say later on in the show. But I think right now is a good time to hit the Wayback machine and take a look at the trailer and see exactly what this movie was going to tell us about itself back in 1986. Before we get to that trailer, It's time for a quick word from our sponsor. Do you want to make love like a hero? Well, now you can thanks to Maximum Sex Drive. This over-the-counter medication for premier sexual performance comes in convenient quick-dissolve capsules that can be taken orally or rectally. It's completely natural and made with all-organic maca, ashwagandha, that classic horny goat weed, Siberian and Asian ginseng, fenugreek, ginkgo biloba, pistachio powder, beet extract, and a dash of cayenne pepper to add some extra horsepower to your pecker. Next time you stop to pump, consider the hump. You'll thank me later. It's the best gas station dick pill that money can buy, and you can find Maximum Sex Drive exclusively at Dixie Boys locations nationwide. And now, back to the show. Let me get a hold of that. There we go, you see that? I can see, yes. All right, let's see. There you go, De Laurentiis Entertainment Group. Giancarlo Esposito, who I just put up in the movie game the other day. Who was driving it? I don't know. I love it. Bubba just puts a loose missile into his pocket as he's one-handing the bazooka in the other hand. Please don't let me in the dark. I mean, this trailer definitely feels like a horror movie, though. We already in trouble. Maximum terror. Jesus coming in his Maximum King. Maybe tomorrow will be our world again. Dino De Laurentiis presents Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> Close this trailer out with an explosion. That's how you do it. Yeah, that's definitely like pushing like this is a horror action movie. Yeah, it's like, hey, this is Stephen King. Um, this yeah, is gonna be this is gonna be scary. It's gonna be maximum amount of scary. Uh, 
there's this truck with a green goblin face that never really gets explained for any reason other than it was some guy's truck and he had that on his truck and that's the guy that they hired. <laughs> yeah, man. But it, it it's a great image though. Like it is. That, that is a great, great image. Um, and as I said, that's what that's what has stuck with me for my whole life is that stupid that truck. Like it's such a great image. And like when it finally you knew it was gonna get it. Yeah, you know? and when they finally do shoot a missile into the mouth of the Green Goblin, it's a great. It's it is a pretty fantastic image. Like it does pay off in my opinion. Like it, you know, it looks very devilish. You know, the eyes light up and it's like on fire and mm-hmm. like, you know, so it's a good payoff at the very end. Um, but I mean, the I think the other thing is, you know, again as like a, a kid. Like they bring out this rocket launcher and they don't just use it once. They use it multiple times throughout the whole movie. And again, like that's the the coolest shit. Like, you know, like all that stuff is, I know why I loved it as a kid is like the, the truck and the missile launcher and the machine gun truck. And like, you know, like the image of um, the waitress finally getting shot up by the the machine gun. Like Wanda June. Yeah. Like, you know, and again, it doesn't, it doesn't pull its punches. Like she gets shot up and all they do is cover her with a, like a cloth. (laughs) Yeah. Emilio's just like, Hey, can I at least cover the, the dead woman here? They don't go to retrieve her body. They don't really like have a moment of silence for her. I mean, she's at the end of her wits. She's already, that's I think her second freak out at that point, but you talk about that bazooka. It's like the village bicycle. Everybody got a turn with the bazooka. And she, too, in her death scene, she gets shot up and then one hand launches the bazooka, kills another truck. So she at least gets to go out in a blaze of glory. I don't know how she accurately aimed that thing while getting shot up by a heavy machine gun. But hey, credit to her. She got to take one of them with them when she went. Right. And uh, yeah, the kid, you know, so I don't remember so another thing that I liked, you know, you know, kind of a, one of those small town icon, iconic images is when the kids, again, riding his bicycle through the town, you know, the, the resident, the residential town area mm-hmm. is the ice cream truck. Yeah. And that's Was it mighty tasty. Something. Ice like cream? <laughs> so who ends up shooting up the ice cream truck? Is it the kid? It is Brett and Bert, I think, run oh, into the street and shoot it up. Not, not that I'm going to try and like try and outthink Stephen King. Maybe the kid should have shot up the ice cream truck. Yeah, that would at least thematically be more on par. But uh, the kid shoots up the drive-through uh, speaker box, so he gets to have his moment of shooting up something still. But then we get the kid too, still like, no, now take the gun away from me. He doesn't even want the gun after that moment. He just sort of like has his moment of frustration over what they did to his dad. And he moves on from there. And it's an interesting decision in a world where like everybody sort of is wielding firearms and they sort of need them as the only line of defense between them and the machines. And the kid still like puts himself above it. And he feels like he's gotten whatever kind of revenge that he actually can for his dad in that moment. And it's like, take the gun away from me. This isn't something that I want to keep. Right. And, um, 
something that I, I, I wanted to bring up and I'm surprised that the trailer didn't really um, take advantage of it is ACDC. Like, yeah. And I mean, look, I like ACDC, but like, you know, like, I feel like I read that this kind of might have revitalized their career at the time. Cause like, you've got, you know, um, they have Hell's Bells. Hell's they, Bells for those about to rock. Yeah. There was an original that they recorded for this. Who is who or something like that? Who made who? Who made who? That's right. And um, what's the what's the end credit song? That big famous song of theirs. That uh, I uh, it's not Thunderstruck. There's there's another movie or excuse me. There's another song on the front end, and then another song on the back end that I don't really remember. That's right. Yes. Yeah. But the, the, like, I still remember that video for that, like from watching the video for that as a kid, you know? Uh, so, but like, even like, forget, like, even like the big ACDC songs, like they did all, I think they did all the music. Like, and I thought mm -hmm. it was, really, I, I thought it was really effective. Like, I, th I think it fit the, the movie, you know what I'm saying? And it like, it's kind of, you know, like, it also at, like tonally like added like not like it made it fun you know what i'm saying like it's yeah 100%. Our fun kick-ass rock band so you know the scenes you know more action scene actiony scenes where acdc's music came in like it really fit the movie role it made it it made it like fun and exciting and um, it made it different too because yeah. there's moments in the film where in a horror movie, you would typically pivot to like whatever horror music you want to use to sort of push the emotional cues in that direction. Like you're supposed to be afraid here. But yeah. in this, like you get a lot of those needle drops for ACDC and it's like, you're not supposed to be afraid here. You're supposed to be rocking out and having fun here. And right. so I love that about this movie. And it it's not something that is super common. Uh for horror films to sort of steer you away from the thing that is supposed to be scary. So I love that, but I also love the original score for this as well, because for me, it feels like the psycho music, but played by somebody with like an electric guitar and a really loud amp. Cause you still get that kind of like, ing, 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 but just, turned up and electrified it really gives some strong horror vibes and i think actually points to like a movie that's very important in horror history and sort of borrows from that but still kind of makes it its own thing and then it uses a lot of the acdc to sort of fill in the gaps uh beyond that in terms of like what you want the vibe of the film to be and some movies are just vibe movies and that's okay yeah and like so tonally like yeah i mean and even like um during the trailer they're like you know maximum king like you know <laughs> i mean like you know this is a movie that's supposed to like they want it to rock you know what i'm saying and i think rock and roll is brought up multiple times like you know i mean a character even says hell's bells mm -hmm. like it's like oh hell's bells acdc um and i i think it makes the movie unique 
Like, I don't know. If, I don't think ACDC's ever done anything like this for another movie. You know, like, so it's very, like, unique to have that kind of music in a movie and it worked well and not feel like shoved in. You, you know what I'm saying? Or like tacked yeah. in. And that actually like explains sort of Emilio's character a little bit better in that like if you gave him a guitar, you could easily be like, yeah, this guy is in a rock band and he got arrested for drug charges and now he's trying to work his way back. So it, it fits like that persona of like he's got the earring, he's got the style, he's got the attitude. He tells his boss to like fuck off or he's going to punch his teeth in. There's a lot of profanity in this movie that's hilarious. I wish I would have written more of it down, but like adios, motherfucker. I don't know if that's the first time that it got uttered but i know that there is that really really strong drink that's bright blue that when i was sort of like starting to drink and wanted to get drunk for cheap out in vegas it's like give me an adios motherfucker because it's like five different kinds of liquor it looks like the water at a mini golf course like it's gonna get you messed up pretty quick so i've heard of it i've never had it so i'm gonna talk to you (laughs) I've been a Jaeger guy most of my life. So if I want to get drunk, it's it all you need is two or three shots of Jaeger and you're you're pretty good. So yeah. have you had a Long Island iced tea? Of course. Yeah, I'm, okay. So yeah. that's exactly it's basically an adios, but with like blue, I think blue curacao is in it, which make it which gives it the color. You're asking someone that was born and bred on Long Island <laughs> had a Long Island iced tea. Of course I yeah, I mean, well, it's like I'm from California, and so it's like, do I eat avocado toast all the time? Like, no, but like I've had oh, no, it, so I know. I know. <laughs> you um, never know. So that brings up something I wanted to like. I I went in a little deep dive. So someone says, I think it's I don't know who says it. I should have wrote who said it, but like someone says, eat my shorts. Yeah, I and think it's uh, Yardley Smith. Is it? Yeah. And then a couple years later, you know, she goes on to voice Lisa and maybe even brings that line to the table or maybe she gets hired onto The Simpsons because of this film. That's what I'm wondering. And like, so I I Googled to like, I did like a five minute Google search. What was the first usage of Eat My Shorts? Mm -hmm. And the earliest I could see is that I do remember this because I I watched um, the Breakfast Club uh, this year again, you know, a rewatch. Mm-hmm. And it was used by John Bender in The Breakfast Club, which was just a year before. So that was 85. This came out in 86. So I, th- I think those are the years. And uh, so apparently, so, you know, Breakfast Club, Emilio Estevez, Eat My Shorts, Yardley Smith, I'm making connections that probably aren't really connected, but I'm making them. I mean, it seems like it's there. And I think it's... It's also like we see if we see it in Breakfast Club, you get Bender, who's like the rebel in that story. Right. Mm -hmm. Emilio's the good guy or he's the he's the track uh, track jacket, uh, letterman jacket guy. He's the athlete. Um, And then in this, you know, he is playing sort of the bad guy, not the bad guy, but, you know, the the badass character. And so then this line gets passed on now to somebody else and we see it from this character who really isn't like a badass, but 
you know, she doesn't hold back with her mouth in this movie oh. at all, which is really fun to see from her because I've always known her mostly as Lisa Simpson, who's very straight laced, who's very by the book. She doesn't really get to let loose all that often. So uh, I was happy to see that. Yardley Smith says some curse words. She does. It's great. Yeah, no, <laughs> pretty fantastic. I know I'm just I'm hearing Lisa and this isn't a character that she ends up really refining and spending a lot of time with until at least like four years down the line. The first year of The Simpsons wasn't a full like 26 episodes, I don't think, Uh, but it was 1989. So, you know, three years after this, she's knee deep in Lisa Simpson, which would go on to be, you know, one of, like I said, the most iconic characters in television history. So kind of cool to see that stuff going on like in the background and to just see that maybe one person who is a creative was influenced by another person then influenced by another person and this comes to the point where you know we get a line like this from bart simpson eat my shorts you know and he sort of embodies the spirit of the emilio estevez or the john bender type where he's he's the not good kid to lisa's bookworm you know yeah, man, you're you're making these connections. <laughs> I, I I love this kind of crap. Stuff. Yeah, but, uh, and I mean, shit, all the North Carolina stuff going on too. Like, there's there's definitely some connective tissue that is lurking beneath the surface that has brought this all together. And like I said, Giancarlo Esposito, who I didn't even remember was in this movie, has a very small role, and he was the my person of choice for the round two hundred of Identify. And I just I chose him in another bad movie that I like because I love Giancarlo. And so seeing him here, I'm like, oh, wow. I didn't even realize that he was part of really how good this cast is with Pat Hingle, Yardley Smith, Frankie Faison. He's in it as well. Um, Giancarlo, that is. So this cast is like way better uh, on paper than maybe the movie allowed it to be at the time. Because it still does have sort of the the TV movie kind of vibe. But like you look at some of the names attached to this that went on to really like be successful over a long period of time. It's impressive. It is. And I, I, I'm glad you brought up the TV movie thing because I, I completely agree. With like and that may be how I saw it is like on TV. Yeah. Um, and it does have that kind of feel. And it also has that kind of feel of a movie. Look, it's way too long ago. I don't know how many times I've seen it mm. uh, back when I was a kid, but it's the kind of movie that, you know, back in the day would come on randomly on TV and you'd leave on. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like you just yeah. leave it because it's like, hey, I'm doing nothing on the Saturday afternoon. I'm like 11, 12 years old and I love this goblin truck and I'm going to leave this on, mm-hmm. you know, and it'll pass the time. And I said to you last night, I really, this may sound strange. So for me, like, I felt like the movie was pleasant. Isn't that weird? I feel like that was a weird reaction. There's a certain pleasantness and easygoingness about the movie. To the point where it's a little slow. I mean, I will say, I did feel like it was a little slow at times. But like, I don't know. Like, it certainly didn't scare me. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not horror in that kind of sense. Um, But like. I don't know. It was just, I, I don't know if I'm going to go as far to say as a, it's a comfort movie, but it's getting towards what I'm talking about. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think you've also, if I remember correctly, you've been watching a lot of horror films this month 
as mm-hmm. well. And so putting this sort of in that same category, I think you can really see how far away from sort of traditional horror that this actually is. And I mean, like you said, it gets a little bit slow here. Like I said, it gets a little long in the tooth because I think we start to see uh, a little bit of the inexperience from King as a director and also that this is a short story adaptation. So this isn't something that was initially written to be like a feature length idea, but we, we get Stephen King doing the adaptation. So we get to stay like pretty close to what the source material is. And there is like, okay, there's a little bit too much of the circling with the trucks. There's maybe like too much of the romance going on. There's, there's moments that seem like they're maybe just a little bit too long, but still realistically, what, maybe five minutes you can cut from this and maybe you tighten it up a little bit, but it's only an hour, 35, 38. So there's not a ton of fat to trim off of this anyway. So I don't really have a problem with it sort of like, I mean, spinning its wheels here, but (laughs) you do get a lot of the sort of b-roll of the trucks rolling into town or driving around the gas station in a circle a lot of like the let's call it the uh intimidation scenes maybe go on for a little bit too long but i completely forgot that this movie starts in space like we're not like there's no characters in space but the movie starts in outer space and i was like wait a second this whole thing was caused by a comet's fart comet whizzes by earth i forget what the particular comet was but it whizzes by earth and it leaves like a debris trail that trickles down into the atmosphere and brings all these machines to life and i sort of was like taken aback for a second because this is such a small contained story for the most part in this one location like you said it's almost like a play so then to like preface a play with hey this event happened in outer space and it's affecting the whole world and we're just going to zoom in on this one small town and see what's happening there it's a very interesting thing to do because by the time we get to the end of the film they then have to tell us again oh 2 days later after the end of <laughs> this movie Two days after, uh, a Russian satellite with a laser cannon and nukes equipped destroyed a UFO outside of the Earth's atmosphere. Like, what? (laughs) Wait a second. I thought this was all caused by a comet. Why did you bring a UFO into this and have it get shot down by a Russian spy satellite that happens to have a laser and nuclear bombs equipped? I don't know. I I, (laughs) don't say about funny dig at Russians at the time. I don't know. It's the 80s. You know? Yeah, like, of course, those Russians have some secret satellite up there ready to nuke us. <laughs> so, um, yeah, like, and like, Bill finally, like, towards the end, gives some big explanation. I don't even remember it. Like, something about the comet, and I don't even, I don't even remember it. And like, yeah, him and Brett talk, and she's like, Oh, yeah, well, it's supposed to like, we're supposed to be out of the, the trail in eight days. So if we can just survive for a week, we'll be fine. Yeah. Like, but you know, I, I so technically, I think that's what makes this a quote unquote bad movie. You know what I'm saying? Like, crap, yeah. like this. but like, I don't know. I in a movie like this, I don't need more. Like, you know, I don't need some. I don't need some big scientific explanation. I uh, postscript is fine. Like, yeah, Russians blew up some UFO. Everyone survived. Great. Yeah. 
90 minutes, <laughs> you know, two hours with commercials. I, I had a good time. Um, to me to the rescue. Huh? Yeah. To be. Yeah. Like, you know, so, and I think, I think that's kind of one of, instead of like saying easygoing or, um, pleasant, like I think it comforts, it's a, it's a comfort movie, you know, it's just something you throw on. It's going to pass your 90 minutes. It's not going to overstay. It's welcome. And, uh, you're going to have a good time. And, you know, this is similar the kinds of things I was saying to you about Morbius. I'm realizing this. 90 minutes. You're going to have a good time. It's not going <laughs> to challenge you. Is it like you brought up during Morbius, like that weird bat catching thing that he. <laughs> was there an explanation for it? No. Nope. Do we need one? Nah, we don't really need yeah, one. Yeah, he controls the bats. Don't overthink it. Never. So yeah. <laughs> maybe I'm trying to realize that. This this general thing is my idea of just a comfort movie. Just throwing this on and, you know, I had a rough day at work and, like, it'll, it won't, like, take too much of my time. I'll be able to go to sleep and be able to wake up fine the next morning for work. Maybe back in the day was wake up for school. You know, maybe this was on a Sunday night, you know, school's the next day. And I watched uh, Shit get blown up by a rocket launcher. It's great. Yeah. I mean, they definitely knew that their pyro budget was big. So they went back to the well. They're like, hey, we don't even just have one bazooka. There's like several bazookas down here. So everybody gets to grab a bazooka. There's even spare rockets that we can just stick into our pants pocket. Like, that's not a pretty precarious place to put an explosive device. But I like that the movie doesn't really ask much of me as the viewer at all it's right. like we're gonna just give you what you need to know and then it's gonna be ridiculous we're gonna have some crazy dialogue in here the guy uh, i think it was bert who says i think i just loaded my pants after like i think yes. they almost got hit on the highway and i was like wait a second loaded his pants so i started paying like much closer attention to the dialogue after that point and i'm like wow some of the profanity in here is really damn good i want to go back and just like see all of the like the best quotes from this movie because there's some crazy writing of the dialogue here and i really loved it and it felt to me like more profane than the average Stephen King adaptation. And I don't know if that's because he wrote it, uh, the adaptation itself, or if he was just like, like he said, he admitted being really coked out for this movie. So I don't know if he felt like all the profanity was a good idea and it really embodied like what the characters were, or if in the source material, this was something that he was pointing to maybe about his, I don't know, loose criticism of the Southerners that like, oh, they all use a bunch of profanity because when I think of Stephen King projects, I don't really think of people like dropping the F-bomb very often, but it seemed like it made its way into this movie like quite a bunch. And so it felt different than a lot of his other stuff, but he's not the one adapting the vast majority of that other stuff to the screen. And I don't read Stephen King enough to know if he's like very profane in his novels. So I don't know, maybe someone, Hey, if you're listening to this at some point in the future, email me. So, I mean, here's the, so something I should say, and it's something that I forget, you know, I'm 44 going on 45. So my childhood is a long time ago. I, 
during my childhood read a lot of Stephen King, like a lot. Like I've read The Stand and like The Stand is over a thousand pages, you know, and mm. it's one of my favorite books. I, I wrote the short, I wrote the, I think this is from Night Shift, the short story collection Night Shift. I, mm. I read that, like, you know, um, I like The Mist. Um, I highly recommend reading The Mist because The Mist is an excellent story. Um, but uh, I was very heavily into Stephen King when I was a kid. And that's probably part of why, like, this movie meant, you know, like, why it was important to me um, is because I was such a big Stephen King fan. You know, I, and I do, like, it's crazy to realize, like, I mean, we talk about, you know, the Shawshank Redemption. And I think people... There's probably people who don't know, but I think people forget that's a Stephen King story. Yeah. Like, arguably, of course, don't send any emails to poor Nick, but <laughs> arguably <laughs> the greatest or one of the greatest movies ever made. You know, it sits at the top of the IMDb 250. It's a Stephen King story. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, I so I did a Stephen King double feature yesterday. I watched Carrie for the first time. Oh, wow. That's a good one. And, you know, the reason why I didn't watch Carrie until this age, 44, is because that story is so so in the ethos, so in history. Like, I felt like I knew the story. I will say this is not good movies we love. But, yeah, did I know the story? It's a phenomenal movie and worth watching. Yeah, Carrie's amazing, right? Sissy Spacek. So good. Like that whole prom scene will stay with me. I'm t- I'm not just talking about the blood, you know. I'm talking about all of it, like leading up, like the when things are going well for her, and then the aftermath. It's a powerful, powerful movie. That's a Stephen King story. It's his first. It was his first novel, The Shining. Yeah, you know, of course, it. Like what we bring up, The Shining. Shining is considered one of the greatest films ever made, and so and it's certainly one of the greatest horror films. Stephen King like so what I'm trying to say is like Stephen King you know certainly deserves I mean to be in the you know consider one of the greatest American writers ever in my oh, opinion yeah, for sure and I, mean, I don't know if he gets like when I credit because of what he does he does genre novels. yeah I mean he but, also did uh the running man but that was under right. his, his pen name of Richard Bachman so like yeah. he, he's been a very versatile writer for a long time and I can't remember if it was Carrie but I think he like wrote the beginning of Carrie and threw it away and his wife like picked it up out of the trash and she's like no you need to go back to this like this is good and so it's just interesting and weird coincidence I had sort of there's a podcast called Movies You Missed and I've been friendly with them on Twitter for a while. And they they play in the movie game. Like we chat back and forth, but I had never really like gotten deeper than that. And V from the show reached out to me and she said that she had listened to the Congo episode. And I was listening to their episode on King, where I think the episode was called like King is King or something. And it was all Stephen King stuff. So they both brought Stephen King movies to the table. And then they both talked about all the different things he had done. And one of the movies they talked about was Maximum Overdrive and how he, how coked out he was. So it was kind of weird to have it all come full circle. And now we're talking about Maximum Overdrive here on the show. Yeah, no, and I, I did think about The Running Man and like 
you know, I, I, that I watched The Running Man finally for the first time because he did an episode on it. And The Running Man is like, again, that's not a bad movie. It's an it's excellent not. movie. Like, it's truly an excellent movie and prescient, you know. So, like, you know, Stephen King, you know, he's he he's a great, great writer. And he deserved his shot. That's a, I think that's part of what I want to say. Like, yeah, it's his only directorial, you know, job, you know, but he deserved a shot. And I'm glad he got it. And it, Me too. You know, and it, it, I hope it was, even though he, he, who knows how much he remembers of it, but, you mm-hmm. know, he got, to, he got to make the movie he wanted to make, whether it's through his coke and alcohol adult mind or not. And, you know, so you might be right that, man, Stephen King just wanted to drop some F-bombs. Yeah, it's quite possible. I mean, we were introduced, oddly enough, to I think he's the first character that we actually see in the movie. He's the guy going to the bank. As as you walk up to the bank, it has a scrolling marquee that just says, fuck you. And I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) I was like, that's that's pretty damn funny for Stephen King to just like be aware in a way that a movie like they live was where you're you're basically like acknowledging that both the consumer and the bank are very aware of the predatory relationship between the two but we just have to accept it anyway and he goes to the atm he tries to take out money and he calls over his wife he's like hey the atm just called me an asshole and then the screen's just saying asshole 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 i'm like oh man i was like this is this is pretty smart pretty funny and that it doesn't like stay the course for the whole story or for the whole film, I should say. But I love that that was in there. And I love that we're introduced first to it through him as right. a character. Cause he always pops up uh, in cameos, but even though this was his one and only film that he directed, he said that he would, he regret, you know, he doesn't remember a ton of it, but he wants to do something sober at one point. And so I hope like at this point, like he it's it seems like it's King time again. It seems like there's a lot of adaptations of his coming out again right now. There's just a new pet cemetery. He did Mr. Hardigan's phone last year, I want to say. Uh, it was a Netflix movie. So I think it's back in the ether. There was a new uh another new pet cemetery that was i think two years ago as well so you're starting to see like more of his stuff coming back full circle into more pop culture stuff um so i wouldn't be surprised to see him maybe get that opportunity but oddly enough he called this movie maximum overdrive a moron movie and i'm like okay maybe that makes me a moron but i really enjoyed the moron aspect of this movie and i think you know, his experience with it is obviously going to be a little bit tainted by what he was going through at the time. But I kind of want like an entire genre of 80s sort of campy action horror films that was just like coked out King, where he just like took all the guardrails off and just did crazy shit for like four or five years. Because I get that, like, look, I don't want to say that, hey, I wanted him to just be knee deep in his drug problem. And you know, have to struggle with that. But in terms of what was going on in the industry at the time, it seemed like there was room for him to have made another movie after this, because even though maybe it was like, you know, trash by critics, etc. It seems like it is held up pretty well 
in terms of uh, people liking it still. So it seems like the appetite was there to let him do something else. So I really do hope he gets the opportunity to do something in the future, you know, while we, while we still have him. Right. I mean, so I, I, I made this list of horror movies I wanted to watch. It's going to bleed into November, but whatever. And one of them is the original hit. I've never watched the original hit. And part of why, why I thought about watching the original hit is because they did a new hit. Yeah. And as far as I know, you know better than me, but I feel like it was well-reviewed. Yeah, most people liked it. Yeah, I mean, like, so, yeah, just to support what you're saying, that he's kind of in the ethos, he's kind of back in the ethos. Like, he's kind of, like, in the public consciousness a little more lately. So, um, yeah, I, that would be great. I would, you know, I would love for him to... He he's Stephen King. Like he deserves, you know, to get what he, you know, whatever it is that he wants. He get he deserves to get a chance. You know, I mean, you know, there has to be someone out there that if he wants it, that'd be like, well, Stephen King. How am I gonna say no to him? You know. So. Yeah, and I feel like there's a lot of first time filmmakers who have made significantly worse films than maximum overdrive and have gone on to still make more movies beyond yeah. that so i think in fairness to stephen king this is not the worst directorial debut that exists and like if this is the low end of the spectrum i would like to see him work his way up as a filmmaker and get the opportunity to do that i mean he still writes a lot he's still very busy so he might not even have time to take you know six eight months a year out of his schedule and to work on a film but it would be really nice to see him, even if it's something smaller scale that's more in the vein of a Shawshank, where it's like a character study. This isn't horror based. It's just very like heavily focused on the writing and the character development and that stuff. I would like to see him give it another shot if he wants to. If he doesn't at this point in his life, I can understand that. But if he does, then let's make it happen for Steve. Yeah. Well, so I did notice like, you know, he did a Hitchcock, you know, he put himself in the movie. So it's funny, coincidentally, I watched They Live for the first time a few weeks ago, too. Oh, wow. Yeah. Rounds, getting checking some boxes there. That's a good one, too. Yeah, it was good. It was really good. And but I mean, Roddy Piper, like he was he was pretty good. You know, he was, you know, again, like someone that you don't think of as being an actor, you know, and, and to be clear, like wrestlers are all actors. You know, we all know that. I mean, there's a reason why, like, a rock yeah. eventually goes into... John Cena now, Hulk Hogan, all these guys yeah, have uh, right. done movies at some point, for the most part. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's part of what they do. The other thing that I know, and I, like, so I've gone on this journey this year um, where I've decided I want to watch movies. I'm done with TV. I want to catch up on movies. Watch lots of movies. I've watched a lot of 80s movies, like a lot. And I know that's part of why I like Maximum Overdrive is because it's in my wheelhouse. Like this, look, I'm 44, I'm middle age. It's nostalgia time. And um, <laughs> it is. And like, you know, like I, I'm not one of those people that thinks it was better back then. And I'm never going to be that person. But it still feels natural to me when I put on an eighties movie, like a maximum overdrive or they live or a running man, it speaks a language that I'm used to. 
Does that make any sense? Like yeah. the way it looks, the pacing, mm-hmm. the acting, the music, of course, you know, um, the even like, you know, it's not jarring for me to see like a corded telephone, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like, and I'm surprised it's not because uh, it's 2023, but I think in my brain, it's so used to those images that it just feels at home in those images. And I, I found, I find it very interesting this journey, how often I'm just put, like, I watched, you know, dress to kill for the first time or um, Carrie, you know, Carrie for the, is Carrie eighties or seventies? I think it was like 76, oh. 77. But still you get, you get my point is that like, um, I've been watching a lot of 80s movies. I know that's part of why when I put on Maximum Overdrive last night, that it was. It was very, com- you know, it was a comfort movie because it's like very much um, something that is, I think, a part of me that I don't even consciously realize is a part of me. Um, so I think that's part of it, too. That's good. I think I have that same similar nostalgia for 90s movies and the way that during the 90s, there was a lot of spec scripts that just got bought because the studios were willing to take more risks. And so I think in looking back at years in uh, box office history from the 80s and 90s, the top 10 box office films are very drastically different for the most part. It's not like, oh, you get a bunch of the same stuff. It's not all a bunch of like franchise sequels that for the most part make up the top 10. And even looking today at um, 1989 to see all of the different stuff there, like Batman was number one, but there was a lot of new different stuff. There was a lot of like adult personal dramas. There was family comedies. Like I think it was look who's talking and can't remember the other one, but stuff like that, where it's like, this is sort of like PG family comedy that was able to be one of the top 10 box office films of the year. It just says a lot about the way sort of the the box office structure and sort of the motivations behind how films are made and promoted have changed a lot. So I totally understand the nostalgia. I don't, I know a lot of people are like nostalgia is bad because we're just looking at the past, but I think, you know, if history repeats itself, it's not, bad to look at the past you just have to understand that when you're looking at the past you're looking at it from the present and a lot has changed and i think it's still okay to enjoy the nostalgia aspects and there's a reason that it sells so well there's a reason that we just had a saw 10 or like a new halloween movie a year or two ago so like all these things are capitalizing on the fact that we do I think culturally and maybe even as a species, we want to look into the past and we want to see the stories from the past and see how they connect us to the present. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I still like to see new movies. I like to see new ideas. I like to go to the movies as much as I can and see as much of the new stuff as I can. But I also like to go back in time and watch some crap that I'm super familiar with that I can put on and just vibe with. And that's that's perfectly fine in my book. Yeah, and so I, I the key for me has always been don't ever say, well, things were better back then. Because every generation falls into that trap. You know, you know, for me, it's always important to give new stuff a try, whether it's new music. Like I saw, I, I heard the end of Olivia Rodrigo's song yesterday. And it was good. Like, you know, I mean, am I going to be going to see her in concert or something like that? No. 
but like I'm not like oh well she sounds like so and so and so and so did it so much better you know what I mean yeah so like as you know like I saw I I just watched Megan um mm-hmm. and I fell in love with it like and talk about like a modern movie with modern themes you know modern technology you know like although there's definitely practical effects which is part of the strength of the movie I think yeah like um I so yeah I definitely you know but it's funny how I I find myself having to be like okay I need to watch a new movie because <laughs> I I will fall into that into that trap of like oh the city's movie like I just watched Reanimator for the I think the first time, maybe the second time. I'm like, yeah, man, reanimate. I'm gonna throw that on. I went through a Schwarzenegger phase, as you know. I watched mm-hmm. *Conan the Barbarian* for the first time. <laughs> I watched uh, *Raw Deal* for the first time, *Commando* <laughs> for the first time, and it was great. It was great. So, yeah, it's a natural. I think it's a natural part of it is to reach this middle age and be like, man, things when you were a kid. Yeah, it takes you back to a time in your life where sort of like the way that certain smells do, where it just puts you in a place of comfort. And I think that's okay. I think it's also okay to watch things that make you uncomfortable. But I don't feel like one is bad and one is good. I feel like there's times where I want to go to the movies and feel good at the end of the movie. There's times where I want to go to the movie and feel however shitty the movie wants to make me feel in that moment. It's just it's it's finding balance for me personally. And I'm on my own project of trying to watch a movie a day. And I'm pretty good pace wise this month, but I do have plenty of catching up to do from other months. But I spent what was it last week? I basically started chipping away at new movies that i had missed for a week and i ended up seeing the new exorcist royal hotel cat person saw 10 uh killers of the flower moon i saw dicks the musical and still the michael j fox documentary was the most recent 2023 movie that i watched so it it was fun but i also mixed that in with like 85 89 another 85 81 uh 75 uh what else is in there a 2020 movie that i was like hey i've never heard of this before but it's available i don't know what i want to watch so let me just throw this on and it was weird and captivating and i don't know if it's something that i'd be like i love this movie so much but i was glad that i spent the time watching it yeah yeah, you watch a lot of movies. <laughs> I do not not as many as some people. I'm trying to like see if it changes my my habits or my appetite for film if I watch a lot more than I typically would because I was always watching like a couple hundred in a year, but now I'm trying to hit a milestone which is like a uncomfortably high amount for me. So I'm pushing, I'm working on it. I'm trying to like sneak one in at night, but I, you know, we all get caught in that doom scroll where it's like, oh, man, this streaming service has like so many movies that I'm adding to my watch list. And then by the time I'm done adding everything to my watch list, I'm tired and I want to go to sleep. Yeah. And I think that's why, like, I made a list of movies like because I, I might con- I might continue to do that where I, like go to a different genre or whatever, make a list of movies and just tackle those movies. So I might reach 200 movies this year. So hey, that's pretty good. That's a lot more than just like a regular person. <laughs> I, I talk to my sisters like my older sisters and it's like i don't even know that they watch five movies in a year yeah <laughs> so it's like it's yeah. really weird for me to like watch a lot well so i have i i think i have one last question for you regarding uh maximum overdrive 
Yep. What on earth is a pea turkey? I don't know. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like she says, like the the waitress, whatever her name mm-hmm. is, she can't get pea turkey on the radio. I'm like, what is a pea turkey? <laughs> maybe it was like a regional show or something like that. Or no, maybe it's like a weird... by, like, I think it was her way of saying I can't get shit on the radio. Ah, okay. I don't that, know. That's, that would be the only other thing I could think of is that it's like a colloquialism for some sort of like swear word that they didn't want to put there. And then is it just me or does the actor that plays Curtis? Mm-hmm. His name is John Short. I've never heard of him. Mm-hmm. I kept on feeling like he looked like Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, a little bit. He looked like John Hader. Yeah, I could see that. It's like, man, is that John Hader's father? Um it would have been an interesting uh, character dynamic to have him be like Napoleon Dynamite in this movie, but yeah, a little ahead of its time. So is Napoleon Dynamite... Wait, Napoleon Dynamite's not a bad movie, right? It's not like... That doesn't qualify for that no, I would say no. I don't think so. And I don't think that there's enough numerical evidence to suggest that it would qualify for this show but i mean you know what did i do i did meet joe black which has good user reviews and mostly mediocre critic reviews so i think that's why we did that one on this show but yeah i never looked at that as a bad movie either wow speaking of numbers you love numbers no like (laughs) When do you want to do, uh, let's do Critics Corner. Uh, well, yeah, we got to do trivia first. Trivia, okay. Uh, I've buried the no, trivia so to... deep in this episode. <laughs> All right, let's, it's trivia time. Let's do it. Trivia time. I want to fail a, a trivia quiz. Time for trivia! Uh, well, there's some interesting like anecdotal questions that I built out of this. So, for, number one, Stephen King's work on this film with Dino De Laurentiis led to the franchising of what other iconic horror film? I'll give you a hint. I think it's your favorite. Wait, is it? I think I heard you say that it was your favorite horror franchise. Evil Dead? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, so at the time that this was happening, uh, I guess King was maybe friends with Sam Raimi, and they were having trouble getting financing for the sequel. And because of King's relationship with De Laurentiis for this, De Laurentiis then financed the Evil Dead sequel that came, I want to say, a year after this movie. I didn't know that. That's really cool. So it was Dino De Laurentiis and Stephen King who helped birth the Evil Dead into a franchise. So they gave us Evil Dead 2. They gave us Army of Darkness. You know, that ended up spawning uh, Ash vs. the Evil Dead, which is a fantastic TV show as well. Plus, we got two new Evil Dead movies uh, coming since 2013. So Stephen King might be responsible for the success of the Evil Dead franchise. That's awesome. And again, like, sorry to beat a dead horse, but like the reason why Evil Dead is my favorite horror franchise is because it doesn't take itself too seriously. Like, I mean, it's all about, it's all, it's all about Ash, you know, Ash yeah. is such a good character and, you know, army of darkness, in my opinion, it, like I'm not someone that gets wrapped up in these arguments, but is army of darkness really even a horror movie? I feel like it's just a comedy. You know? Yeah. It's like, what genre would that be? Like it's a period piece almost. So like period, comedy horror 
So I don't know, maybe in the realm of like a young Frankenstein where it's not really serious, but semi-serious enough in certain moments. But really, like that movie has a lot of fun with itself. I mean, Army of Darkness is my favorite one in the franchise just because of like what it is. It's like they're, you know, skeletons storming a castle and like, you know, the clone version of Evil Ash and all that stuff. I love that kind of stuff. So uh, that's why that one's my favorite. But. Yeah, Bruce Campbell. Yeah, exactly. Um, OK, question two. As we talked about, ACDC did the soundtrack for this film, but they only agreed to provide the soundtrack for the film after Stephen King did what? Wow, I know they were like his favorite band. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to take a guess, because after the movie, I looked at the cast. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, they had cameos. Yeah, so, there's some rumors about that. I don't know if it was confirmed or not, but I've heard conflicting stories. So is it giving them cameos in the movie? It is not. He actually sang Ain't No Fun for the band i don't know where he met them but he's like i'm gonna perform this song for you and risk embarrassing myself just to prove that i'm a huge fan and i guess they liked it so much and they had such a good time laughing (laughs) with him about it that they decided to do the soundtrack oh well that's cool like and it's cool like hey man he probably was super nervous too if they were like his favorite band oh yeah on the bridge at the beginning, there's a van that has their logo on it. I noticed that. Yeah. And I think at the end, too, because there was a van that uh, I think it was it like, I don't know if it drove them around or if they were on set or not, but that van popped up a couple of times. Yeah. So question number three said the trailer that we watched for this movie reuses the score for what other horror film? Oh, I'm not even going to. <laughs> I'm not even going to. I don't know. I'm going to say The Shining just for the fun of it. <laughs> it is not The Shining. It is Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. So not even the original Halloween. They're like, no, we need we need the B team over here. Um, but that tells me that maybe when you had asked the question about why not like promote ACDC's music in the trailer, they may have not agreed to do it until wow. after the trailer had already been cut and then they uh, provided the soundtrack for the film later. Would be my guess, because, yeah, if you can play Hell's Bells or Back in Black or any of their hits that were out in the mid 80s, like I would think you would want to showcase ACDC as part of the project, because I think that soundtrack is one of the strengths of the film, especially if you're an ACDC fan. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like I like I definitely noted that there was none of their music. And I mean, you would think they would make a huge fuss over it. Um, So. But um, yeah, so as you know, I, I learned something about myself this year, which is that I'm one and done when it comes to horror franchises. I have I put together a list of all the horror franchises <laughs> the first movie, and it currently stands at third. Well, if I include in City, <laughs> I watched for the first time, uh-huh. it's now 40 <laughs> horror franchises where wow. I've only seen the first one. And none of the sequels. And I don't know so many franchises. <laughs> I know. And how well, so Halloween, I've seen like a random sequel, but I certainly haven't seen the third one. Gotcha. I mean, well, yeah, if you take if you say on average a horror genre film 
that gets franchised has like a minimum of five movies. You're you're talking about like 200 ish movies that you would have to watch to just catch up on just those franchises. Like that's a lot of work. I get it. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I don't know why I don't have a good explanation. I guess my only explanation and please don't like find me and hate me on Twitter is I feel like sequels are just not as good as the, like Halloween's a perfect example. Look, I haven't seen the other Halloweens, but is any of them as good as the first one? I mean, the first most one people will probably say no. It's, and it, I, I like I gave it five stars. Like Jamie Lee Curtis's performance is incredible in Halloween. So it's it's a genuinely like frightening, you know, tense movie. Like it's 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 an excellent movie. So man, I don't want diminishing returns. Like, Understandable. It's an investment of your time and, you know, you're not getting the same out of your time the further you go down the chain. I will say Saw X was good and I liked that it changed things a little bit, but I also I don't think watched Saw like four through nine. I don't even remember which was the last one I saw, but it was like, oh, there's like new characters. He's got like assistants now. Okay, this is maybe getting into a realm that I'm not really into. So I was like, whatever, I'm trying to see as many you know new movies as i can while they're in theaters i had seen the other stuff i wanted to see so i'm like whatever saw 10's fine and i think i was the only person in the theater that day watching <laughs> at like 11 o'clock in the morning but uh i really i liked what they did i mean it still like does the saw thing but it's a little bit more character focused so it's just it's difficult to make a sequel that captures what the original did and then improves on it or explores some area that has not been explored in any of the previous works that's really difficult and especially when you're like 10 movies deep in a franchise like what new can you bring to the table at that point it, it's a challenge so it's it's a tough place to start from for the filmmakers that are involved in those projects right no i agree um and uh yeah people have been talking up saw saw x man I'm feeling cultural pressure to see it. <laughs> I don't think it's a like a culturally relevant movie in that way. Um, no. But like if you're really into horror stuff and you're into like horror franchises, then I could see it makes sense. I saw it more out of just curiosity and having seen all the other options in theaters already. So I was like, yeah, might as well. And so I went in with low expectations. It exceeded those expectations in a pleasant way and did some interesting things with the characters. And uh, yeah, I liked it. I wouldn't like, you know, write home about it or anything, but I liked it. I'll probably check it out because the first saw is brilliant. I, I love the first saw. I think uh, realistically, like aside from a little bit of detail that maybe comes around in like saw four, four and five, uh, you could jump from one to 10 and not be in the dark completely. I've heard that. Yeah, I, th I think you could do that and be okay with it if you wanted to. So you don't feel pressure to watch Saws 2 through 9. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. I, I heard there's a lot of uh, uh, bad stuff that happens and there was lots of torture. So I, Yes, I lots of it. Um, and I mean, like, it's done really well. So it's like, it is kind of like, I'm like, who I don't know if I have the stomach for this kind of stuff anymore, you know? Maybe I'm just getting too old, but when the practical effects work is done well, it's gnarly. Yeah. yeah. But I was going to say also, just a little anecdotal trivia. 
some of the rumors surrounding Maximum Overdrive were that George A. Romero ghost directed a lot of the film as King had said he was coked out of his mind and he was rumored to be seeking treatment. I don't know that it was ever confirmed. King has never confirmed it himself, nor did Romero. So I don't know that that is true, but that is a rumor that is floating around this movie. And I just watched a George A. Romero horror film the other night, a restored version of the amusement park from the, I think 1975, but it was a restored and remastered in 21. Very weird, different kind of horror movie. Uh, And then also I wanted to say that I really loved how much of the remote control stuff got done in this film. But I think if I read it correctly, that one of the remote control lawnmowers ran into a prop piece made of wood and like shattered it, splintered it. And the director of photography lost an eye during the production of this film, Armando Nanuzzi, and he sued Stephen King for $18 million, but they settled out of court. Wow. According to what I read, I don't know if any of this stuff is true, but (laughs) Uh, it's pretty crazy to think that like in the middle of production, you blind your director of photography in one eye. Yeah, and you probably need that in order to be a director of photography. You would think so. That sucks. (laughs) It does. So I I hope if they did settle, they settled well, because I don't think this movie had the $18 million to give him if it if it wanted. Um, Yeah, but I think I think now that we got trivia in the bag, now we go to Critics Corner. Yeah, I apologize. No, it's okay. I, I, I let it I let it go. We were having a good time talking. I don't. I don't have like tentpole times where I'm like, okay, we have to do it at this time right here or else it's not going to get done. So there's my excitement over hearing all the bad numbers we're going to hear. <laughs> oh, the there's a lot of bad ones. Yeah. We, I mean, it's got a 24 overall meta score. Uh, I did not look at the rotten tomato score, but I think it showed me when I was browsing on Tubi, it was like in the fifties. So maybe that's a little high, but We're going to start at the bottom, as we always do, with the Washington Post. Paul Atanasio, he gave it a 10. And he says, watching Maximum Overdrive is like sitting alongside a three-year-old as he skids his Tonka trucks across the living room floor and says, Wee! Except on a somewhat grander scale. It's hard to even imagine a movie so impeccably devoid of everything a movie ought to include. July 29th, 1986. So this is from this is from back then, but he did not like it. He doesn't like he doesn't like youthful exuberance is what it sounds like to me. Sounds like he's an old bitter fart. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is. But you know what? But the thing is, is like. As I said, I, I, I grew to love this as a kid, so yeah. maybe he has a point and maybe he just didn't have. He didn't have an inner child in him. There's something wrong with his inner child. And, <laughs> you know, he just needs to let his inner child free and he would have enjoyed the movie. more. Yeah, well, I don't I don't know that the TV Guide magazine review of this is too much more flattering, but it does give it a 20 instead of a 10. And it says maximum overdrive doesn't work on any level as a comedy. It's obvious and asinine as a horror film. It's simply not scary. And as an action film, it's a bore. And now, I don't know about you, 
But when I see a rocket launcher blowing up a semi truck, the last thing I'm like, hey, this is boring. I love real explosions. I love real good pyro in films. And this movie does that really, really well, surprisingly well, to the point where, like, I didn't remember how big of a scale they went with the pyro and some of the explosions in this film. Yeah, they they finally blow up the truck stop real good. Real good. Like, real good. <laughs> you know, and and I and like seriously, like I mean, I'll just say again like the the final image of the green goblin just on on fire from the from the rocket. You know, it's an evocative image. You know, it it's not it's not scary. It's not but like still was well done. Um he just doesn't know how to have fun. That's what I had to say. Like rockets are cool. Machine yeah. guns. Sometimes I just want to watch shit blow up and that's totally okay. Because nowadays we get like digital fire and I'm like, this sucks. Yeah. Like, blow it up for real. God damn it. I know that like that's expensive and takes time and it's dangerous, but please do me a favor and blow something up for real. I mean, it's one of the things that I loved about uh, like the backdraft attraction at universal studios was that it's like, here's how we can actually control real fire. And it was a great exhibition on that. Um, but you mentioned the goblin truck. So before I get to the next horrible review i just wanted to say that uh that truck was taken to a salvage yard in north carolina and the jaw the teeth and like the face were basically destroyed and it was really burned because obviously they destroyed it at the end of the film uh but a john allison of north carolina bought it excuse me and he sold it uh to tim shockey and tim owned a video store uh it was called uncle jim's video land and so he had the truck on display for several years in Ohio until he sold the business. And then he kept the truck for 20 years. And in 2011, he put it into his garage and started restoring the truck. And then after two years of restorations, he now apparently travels across the USA and Canada, taking it to horror and Comic-Con shows. That's really cool, actually. Yeah. So that truck is still out there somewhere making the rounds. And see, like, I mean, that shows true love. Like, yeah, you, know, you don't do that for all... something that you don't love. Yeah. yeah, like that's that's awesome. Yeah, I was um, really happy yeah. to read that. I'm like, oh wow, it still exists. I'm glad because they really blew the shit out of it right there at the end. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to Google and see if I would love to see the truck. I'm gonna have to see if I can go see the truck sometime. Yeah, I'm sure there's like a horror Comic Con thing that comes through Arizona. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. There, there's probably multiple. But um, yeah. Um, well, what's next? What what's the next? Uh, <laughs> what's the next spoil sport? Gotta say, next spoil sport. We got three of them all tied at thirty. So we got the New York Times, Time Out London, and Variety all scored at a thirty. So you can pick which one you want to hear. Let's hear what those stuffed shirts have to say at the New York Times. <laughs> The New York Times, there's no name attached to this one, but it says, for the most part, King has taken a promising notion, our dependence on our machines, and turned it into one long car crunch movie, wheezing from setups to crack ups. And look, there's a reason the demolition derbies exist and have people in the audience like sometimes you just want to see a car get smashed. And OK, maybe it's lowbrow. That's fine. I don't need everything to be some bastion of intellectual you know propriety it just it's okay to be 
a car smash movie. That's totally fine. Totally they smash fine. them good. Smash them real good. Look, man, like, you know, I mean, these are literal monster trucks. Like, yes, exactly. You know, like literal, actual monster trucks. And that probably had a big factor in it, too, for me when as a kid. You know, this wasn't just whatever that famous monster truck was. What was it called? Bigfoot? The, yeah, Bigfoot. I think Undertaker was another one. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. This, these were real. Great Gravedigger, actually. That was the other oh, one. Oh, yeah, Gravedigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Sunday, um, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> but um, I don't know why, but I'm getting this memory. I, I rewatched Thelma and Louise this mm-hmm. year. And they blow up uh oil tanker truck real good in the movie. It's an iconic scene. You know, they they you know they shoot up the big explosion, iconic scene. Why well, this has bunches of those. What yet this is the bad movie. No, no I'm just I'm being so <laughs> maximum overdrive meets Thelma and Louise. <laughs> That'd be an interesting crossover. But we're going to go from the New York Times to the LA Times. And the LA Times was a slightly more generous. They gave it a 40. And it says maximum overdrive offers a variation on what has become a hopelessly hackneyed theme. Technology is a monster. As long as King is tinkering with his crazed machines, the film sustains a certain amount of ominous tension. But as soon as the author turns his attention to his actors, the movie's slender storyline goes limp. It's dreary to the max. I don't know if it was. How can you find Yardley Smith dreary? Yeah, dreary is an interesting word to put on it. But he even when I was talking to Vanya, we were reading these and Peter Travers was like, Weekend of Ernie's is bad for these reasons. And then he sort of like insinuates that the primary joke in bernie's and he takes that and uses it in his own review to like prop up his own negative review of it. and it's like well if you didn't like the joke why did you then steal the joke and put it into your review and so the same thing here where it's like it's dreary to the max in the trailer it's like <laughs> maximum this maximum that like if it's really yeah. maximum this and that like you're then if you don't like it don't borrow from it to prop up your own review and make it sound good that's right. Ebert would have. I, I searched to see if there's an Ebert review and I couldn't find it. I know. He, he probably would, would not have liked this. No. But <laughs> he would have been more creative with his takedown. He so. would have. And he would have pointed to the things that he likes where a lot of yeah. these do not. Uh, and then we're going to close it out with Bill Cosford at the Miami Herald. He gave it a 50. So he's the only one that even got halfway on this movie. He says, Maximum Overdrive is the classic botch. Good idea. Nice effects. Bad pacing. Poor script. No punch. Too bad. As usual, the premise has promise. Hey, so at least he's like, this has good bones. Just he didn't prefer the uh, the style of execution for this one. And, you know, some of that stuff makes sense. It's a first time director. It's a guy who's typically been behind the camera doing the writing for this stuff that gets adapted for him. So this isn't even a movie where, hey, I'm going to write the screenplay. And then someone else is going to direct it. It's, hey, I'm going from writing the short story to the screenplay to directing. So it's, you know, King taking on a lot all at once and obviously being very ambitious in doing so. But I like that this exists as like a counterpoint to a lot of the other super popular Stephen King stuff that has made him the household name that he is. Yeah, and I think I think the the last real thing I'll say 
is um not, you know not you know what i'm saying um if stephen king was truly coked out of his mind drunk from morning until nighttime etc cetera, etc cetera, this movie actually is a lot better than you might expect i mean if the dude was really like having some sort of lost weekend with this movie it's still you know a cohesive movie that it's way more competent than they give it credit for exactly like you know like it's one of those things where you know what nick you you made a good point who knows what king could have done sober Mm -hmm. like so you can look at as like a lost opportunity but also give him give him a little credit you know that like we're still talking about this movie. They just put out a steelbook of it. Like in 2023, you know, however many, you know, 40, almost 40 years after it came out. So it can't be that much of a failure. No, it's got staying power. Yeah. And can't, can't deny that. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, just, just as an aside, you know, the, you know, talking about like the technological, you know, um, aspect of the movie you know technology is bad and will take over uh, you know i mentioned megan and that's that is very much the theme of megan you know so that kind of theme will probably exist in movies 50 years from now who knows what kind of technology they'll be warning us about but you know yeah. i think movies are always grappling with technology and you know i mean could this have been done better sure but you know it I don't know. It still uh, makes a good point. So, yeah, and, and I, uh, I I think the review that's sort of pointing to it, like, oh, this this tired thing of like technology is bad. It's like I don't see the movie really making that comment. I think it's more about uh, dependency being bad, and that we've given up a lot of our autonomy as people to machines, and then what happens when those systems break down? No, well, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was uh that was fun. They're all they all need to uh talk to their inner children and say it's okay to come out and play once again. It is. It's okay to bust out your Tonka trucks and smash them into each other or you know, get dirty and do some real pyro. It's all okay. And sure, I would have loved to see like Stephen King sober on top of his game, get an opportunity to make a movie that was born from his own vision anyway. But you know what? Like I said earlier, I think there was room in the eighties for just like coked out King movies. And we still didn't even get those. So you know what? Hopefully we put enough out there into the universe that he's going to get an opportunity to direct something if he wants it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Fingers crossed. But until then, this movie is just going to have to uh, live in infamy as one of the bad movies we love. And I mean, it's up there with the movies that helped make this show. It's right there as like, I don't know if it's a Hall of Fame candidate movie for this show, but it's pretty close. And I'm tempted to say yes. I don't have the horn music queued up. But I'm tempted to say that this is one of the Hall of Fame type of movies for this show. Well, if you want to include it, I'd be honored. So. 
I might, I might have to write something up that's a little bit more fluid and coherent in post, and then we'll put the swelling music behind it, and we'll lift it up, and we'll inaugurate it, but that's all for another day. Okay. Well, yeah, man. You know, look, I'd be, I'd be honored because I, I haven't started the campaign, but maybe I'm going to start now. Look, man, Morbius, Morbius, uh, maybe one day in your heart. Yeah, maybe when Morbius gets to 10 years old, we'll circle back. Assuming okay. I'm still doing this show in 10 years and I can look back and be like, you know what? Morbius really is one of the crowning achievements of bad movies we love. And I mean, the people have spoken with their ears because they've listened to a lot of Morbius. I'll give them that much. Wow. Um I will say, and maybe I shouldn't say this, but I live this life like today at work. Um, I will always love you came on in the radio. And I said to my friend, you hear this song? The song's about Morbius. <laughs> I will always love Morbius. So Nick, this might scare you. I know you only know me via Twitter and the film club and your podcast but i live that life this is who i really am so i'm really someone that loves morbius i'm really someone that as a child loved maximum overdrive stephen king's coked out uh you know uh technology uh horror you know uh warning or whatever you want to call it but that's who i am hey embrace it love what you love but uh yeah i mean you uh if, if this was like one of the genesis's of you're a truly excellent podcast. Like, and that's the other thing I want to tell you. Like, I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass. Like, I'm not just trying to make you feel good. I think this is, you know, just everything that I said to you, your podcast. People want to talk about the things that they love and in a, in a, in an environment where they're not going to be judged. And, you know, I think you've seen that, like, you know, the people that participate, they have this forum where it's like, yeah, like people think this movie's bad, but I love it. And these are the reasons why I love it. And, uh, you know, so I, I think uh, I think you've touched a lot of people uh, with your podcast. It's a, it's a great it's a it's a great idea. And I give you a lot of credit. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I've told you personally off the show that I feel like in in doing this, it's become a lot more about people than it has about movies i mean like movies are sort of the catalyst for why we get into these conversations but the conversations tend to not always just stay on course for here we're just talking about this movie and don't go outside the box because i think it is important to contextualize why we love the things that we love and so i'm happy to have created a space where people feel comfortable coming on here and talking about stuff that they love that maybe other people don't or that the critics shit on or whatever. I mean, we Ben just introduced somebody that had done their first podcast ever with us uh, for the hot rod episode this past Friday. So it was nice to be like, Hey, this is this person's first podcast appearance. Like I've done that for, I mean, I think Nick's, it was his first podcast to come on here and uh, talk about troll when he did it. And, you know, I had talked to Seth that before he had officially started doing movie friends. So it's been a great space to just like, not just talk about movies that I like, which this is one of, you know, I think similarly, similarly to how I approached the beginnings of the film club is that I never made it about 
my taste i when we had our first like 12 people or whatever i picked last so i was like i want everybody else to be able to bring their movie to the table tell me about it let me learn about you and why you love this movie through the experience of talking about it and so that was something that i valued and i wanted to just make a a safe space and a forum where we could do that same thing but with movies that are generally frowned upon yeah and i feel that and you know just as like like next month we're doing nick vember and that's right in the and the film club definitely put my thumb on the scale with that one yeah and (laughs) i actually don't plan on contributing a movie because like i'm gonna find it for some reason i just i'm gonna find it more interesting to uh watch other people's picks you know what's their favorite and mine is wild at heart um you know yeah i mean but like you know I, i first you know i just had a pick in the film club you know, so I'm like, you know what? No, I, you know, I just had a pick. The wheel was fortunate to me. Let's see what. So I take that to heart too with the film club. Like that's what I'm there for. Not there to yeah. always share what I love. I want to like hear what other people and 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 watch those movies. So, yeah, I definitely feel you. It's been good. Well, I appreciate the kind words, and I appreciate you taking the time on a Monday night to hang out and talk Maximum Overdrive. Uh, it feels like this was always bound to happen and now just seems to be the right time because everything's coming up North Carolina. I've listened to a friend's another friend's podcast about Stephen King. You know, it's yeah. all just lining up. So I think now is yeah. the right time for maximum overdrive. And I still, I don't know if I'm going to do like bonus episode style and do this as like a Halloween one, or if I just give this the full attention it deserves and make this the hall of fame induction episode for maximum overdrive but the more i say it it has a nice ring to it so i think we're gonna go hall of fame style well i would be honored I'm not <laughs> just, that, it, that would make me but whatever you decide i'm just thrilled that you invited me and you you wanted to have me and um yeah I, I always have a good time so thank you so much yeah it's always nice talking to you so again Thanks for your time and for indulging me in a movie that I love from childhood as well. I'm glad we both loved it. And it's really nice to hear that it's got a nice steelbook treatment that somebody picked up that truck and refurbished it. Like there's clearly love out there for this movie. So don't let the rumors or the, you know, the negative reviews sway you from it. You know what? Here, I'm going to read this one that's at the bottom of the the page. It's a user review. So this is a little out of the ballpark for what we normally do. but. One of the best things about running your own show is that you get to do literally whatever you want. So let's go ahead and kick the tires and light the fires on the Maximum Overdrive Hall of Fame induction ceremony. This, the, the review is titled, Who Made Who? It says, this is one of those films I would always pass up, showing little interest until today. And what did I just watch? The opening half hour is insane entertainingly insane all coked up and on the fly all these ideas come together in a stupid collection of out there and homicidal set pieces as every bit of machinery becomes demonically possessed after a comet passes through the earth's atmosphere so no one is safe from the onslaught when the machines start a global crisis for blood director stephen king who also makes an amusing cameo at the beginning lines it up with dark humor right performances and outrageous stunts it's pure chaotic madness I admit, I didn't find the second half to be as impressive when the action comes to a standstill at an isolated truck stop, but still, 
There are enough silly bug-eyed decisions in the latter half to get your rocks off with the likes of Emilio Estevez and a rocket launcher packing Pat Hingle heading a motley crew against circling trucks led by a green goblin rig. Not to forget either the brutal encounters with a machine gun mounted mule and an electric knife. After such a cracking setup, it's just too bad the film's final payoff isn't much of one. Also, you, can, you can't go wrong with an electrifying ACDC soundtrack, which doesn't uh, wait around to kick in by opening with the killer track, Who Made Who, blaring away. So there you go. Like, this is someone who put it off for a long time because they were told it was bad. And then in watching it, it was like a what the fuck moment. How did I pass this up for so long? This is, as he said, all coked up on the fly out there homicidal set pieces i love that description and that's kind of what this is this is a no holds barred no no safety bumpers on the bowling alley lane this is full throttle coked up 80s movie making and i love it yeah that was very well written and i think it speaks to another thing that i say to myself about movies that are people say are bad I always say to myself, I'll look at it and sorry to be that horse, but that's how, that's what happened with Morbius. That's what happened with cats. I so, still yet to see cats. I'm, uh, um, yeah. My sisters I, and I, I were supposed to get together and watch it, but it just hasn't happened yet. I will. I, that's why I said about polar express. I said <laughs> to myself, can this really be that bad? And the only way you can really find out is by putting it on. And that's yeah. what this guy did. And he found out it was, and I hope Anyone, well, hopefully people have seen Maximum Overdrive because we just spoiled the whole, but, you know, let's say <laughs> you haven't watched it. Well, people give it a chance. Just give it a chance. It's 90 something minutes, you know? Yeah. Oh, I forgot to ask you too, since I've switched things up a little bit, like what's a good gateway drug movie for Maximum Overdrive? It's a good gateway drug. Man, you're putting me on the spot now. Um... This is what happens when I don't follow my notes. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is a question I was supposed to ask like 25 minutes ago, but oops. I don't know. That's a good question. Like a good companion uh... film, I think, at least from my perspective, would be Christine, because that's John Carpenter handling a Stephen King adaptation. It's got evil car in it you've got a lot of like car getting just car crunch or whatever they called it car crush movie um so it gives you a lot of the similar elements like there's really good pyro work in uh christine as well i think the acting performances and sort of like the story that encompasses everything is better in christine which is why that uh is much more beloved over time but i think if you enjoy christine there's definitely room out there for you to love maximum overdrive. So I have not seen Christine. So mm. you are giving me a recommendation that I will take you on. Um, um, I'm going to say a really weird. Go for uh, it. I'm just kind of looking at the movies I've watched. You know what? Mad Max two. I don't know why. Like, does that make any sense whatsoever? That is, that's not Thunderdome. That's Road Warrior. Yes, Road yeah. Warrior. Yeah, I get it. I mean, it chaotic, fucking fueled up like crazy. Lots of trucks, lots of uh, angry machines in that. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. So, and I'm not just. I'm being. The more I'm thinking about it, and like I, so I rewatched Man, Man like Road Warrior. It is a very good movie. Like, yeah. like you can see how how it birthed 
and influenced so many other movies after it. Um, maybe even this, you know. So there you go. Mad Max 2 Road Warrior. That's my uh that's my uh, pick. I like it. That's a good double feature. Do it, people. Take those gateway drugs that are movies and then watch Maximum Overdrive and join us down in the muck. Join us on our uh, Tonka trucks, as the as the man said, and smash them around a little bit. Uh, but Sean, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it. And I will get this one up soon-ish. Yeah, whenever. There's a, there's a couple in the chamber, but yeah, I'll yeah. get to it. Well, I'm glad we, uh, you know, it was really important to me. I know you wanted to get it done for the Halloween season, so I'm glad it worked out. And uh, I was more than happy to come on your podcast. As I said, I love it, and I'm honored that you have me on. So thank you. Thank you. I'm glad that we can make it work, too, because it wasn't until like halfway through October where I was like, maybe I should throw like a horror movie in here somewhere because, <laughs> because it is October. People like horror season, spooky season. And I was like, I was just not paying attention to that when I did scheduling. So I appreciate you accommodating me on short notice and uh, enjoying Maximum Overdrive with me. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, thank you. Well, All right. Take care. Have yeah, yourself a good night. Good. I'm glad the Internet held up. Oh, yeah, it was perfect. I'm so happy. Yeah. No problems. All right, cool. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, sounds good, Nick. You have a good night. You too. My sincerest thanks to Sean for taking the time to stop by and talk about a movie that we both loved from our childhood so much that we just couldn't resist inducting it into the bad movies we love Hall of Fame. You can catch him on X at Tyler underscore Burnham. And I don't remember the letterbox username, but I'll make sure that I put that stuff up in the show notes for you. And of course, thank you to everyone who took the time to listen to this episode. I know you have a lot of choices when it comes to podcasts, and I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you do, please consider leaving a rating and telling a friend about it. And the new support page is live at coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash badmovieswelove. I'd love to hear from you, so if you have a bad movie you love, and or maybe would like to be a guest on the show, you can contact me now at badmovieswelove at thescheiss.com, or badmovieswelove on Twitter and Instagram, and that's love with an L-U-V. And as always, take care, be well, stay safe, and have fun however you get your movies. <laughs>